This is a presentation from Narara Valley Baptist Church, a church that's desperate for God and passionate for people. Acknowledge the things I want to bring to God. That's really easy. Um, It's quite hard to bring the less positive things, the stuff that we kind of don't even want to acknowledge to ourselves that exist, um, which makes it even more paramount that we do it. And so things that make us feel guilty are probably the things that are most important to bring into the light in order to move forward, is to bring it forward so that we can actually deal with it and move, move forward. Otherwise, what happens is, um, it was really helpful reading through the Bible study um, prep that Johnny did. Um, Brené Brown, who is um, a lead researcher and professor, um, you may have read some of her stuff before or heard her speak, but she kind of talked about the difference between shame and guilt which I thought was really helpful, um, because often when I think of guilt, I kind of synonymously put it with shame, and probably because that's how I end up um, resolving it, is I kind of acknowledge this issue and then just spiral into a shame-descending pit of hell and then just live there. And that's kind of where I leave it oftentimes. And what she talked about um, was it says, I believe there is a profound difference between shame and guilt. I believe that guilt uh, is adaptive and helpful. It's holding something we've done or failed to do up against our values uh, and feeling psychological discomfort. I define shame as the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Something we've experienced, done or failed to do makes us unworthy of connection. So instead of acknowledging that this thing that we've done, thought, not done, not thought, whatever, as kind of something to address or a blip on the radar, we kind of start to absorb it as who we are or will ever be and we just get stuck in that place, therefore, if that's who I am and what I am, then I should be separated from God, people, and anyone else that I can think of. That's often where we can put those things in together. In church world, instead of saying guilt, we could say we feel convicted, instead of saying we feel guilty. Um, That we look at uh, the person of Jesus, we look at who we desire to be in that progression or, or that journey, and go, I'm not there yet, and then there's this conviction of the Holy Spirit. Um, I'm not saying guilt and conviction are the same thing, but we could use it in this example of Brené Brown's uh, as a similar starting point. That these moments of guilt could be fed into a process where we become convicted on that issue um, and actually lead into transformation, which is the more important part, but we're not quite there yet. So I've changed the sermon title of this. I know at nights we like titles. I know that Lewis likes titles and he's good at them. So my sermon was just guilt. Very encouraging, super helpful tomorrow on Monday morning when you're trying to get up for work or school. And uh, as I kind of read and studied, it went from guilt to grace. That was the heading. And I was like, they're not opposites. You don't change from being guilty to being gracious. That doesn't even make sense. So I got rid of that. And then I thought transformative grace is actually accurate. Um, But probably still not quite there. And then it was like convicted by grace. I thought that kind of has a little bit of tension to it. And so that might be cool. So if you take notes, you can pick any of those four that's helpful um, and see what you like. Um, But here's the thing. So when I said that we don't finish with guilt, we're actually going to finish with Jesus, which is always a good finishing starting or any point. Um, But if you've heard me preach any time in the last 15 years, you would have already known that's where I was going. It's kind of all that ever happens. Uh, So that was Ezra who ran through before and was screaming, giggling uh, when Jen was talking, our elder... Next one up, middle child, Hannah, her middle name is Grace. And the reason for that was because that's the only thing worth preaching, um, to be really honest. So we're going to end there. So hang with me while we start with guilt, because we have to, and it's important, and we're going to work our way forward. But we've been singing together, and I thought it'd be cool if we...
preach together. So if you have a Bible, we're in Luke 19, uh, verse 1. I'm going to tell you a little couple of stories before we get into that. See, guilt can do funny things. So it normally stimulates a response of some sort. In my case, it's often negative. Um, And then you sit back for days going, I could have said this better, I could have done this better, I could have won that conversation if I thought this. But it leads to action, more often than not. And so some of you guys are similar age to my formative years of faith. Um, So I I first, well, this age might not, I first kind of received Jesus when I was about 10, uh, and then really kind of stepped into faith when I was 14, 15. And through late teenage years and going to conferences and doing different things, it kind of was this unspoken um, reality that speaking in tongues was the only gift worth having, and if you didn't have it, something was wrong with you. Uh, It wasn't openly said, it wasn't directly said, but it was kind of underneath. Now, if you don't know what speaking in tongues is, that's perfectly fine. It's not true that it's the only gift worth having, so don't stress about that. Um, But I believed that for a long, long time. And I started feeling all this guilt, and I actually felt shame about what is wrong with me that I don't have this gift. I've got other ones, but this one that you're kind of meant to have, and you go home, and you pray in tongues, and you sing in tongues, and you whatever, I don't do that ever. So what the heck's wrong with me? That was kind of where my guilt started. I felt really... I'm lacking in something in my faith. And it got to the point where one night, this, this is the, how you respond poorly to guilt. I was praying for a while and I just said, God, look, I don't know how to shake this. Can you just give me that gift so that I know that I'm good? Like I felt like I was unsaved if I didn't speak in tongues. And for some reason, God said, okay. And so I could then pray, speak, sing in tongues. Um, weirdest thing ever in terms of that response terrible theology that led to a really dodgy request that God still honoured for the sake of one of his children who was struggling, like really struggling. And uh, I don't use that gift often, Um, but this is one of the things guilt can lead you down the path of, right? This is not something you should emulate. (laughs) This is not the positive story we're going to get to. This is a a Josh screwed up story, but it kind of had a good ending because God does that. A, A less intense one. So Sarah, my wife, and I, in um, two weeks' time, have been married for 11 years, which is cool. And just after we got married, um, we started talking about, should we get a dog? Um, now, I grew up with a golden retriever named Shiraz, because my dad likes red wine, but we had a yellow dog and he didn't care. And, <laughs> and for a lot of my life, I remember going, when I'm older and I move out, I don't have to have a pet anymore. It's going to be awesome. Because they eat heaps, they smell, they shed fur, they poop everywhere, they need attention and affection, and that's just too much work. And so I won't have to have a dog. And so we got married, and I'll tell the story inaccurately because it's probably not like this, but the day after we got married, probably wasn't the day after, we started talking about getting a dog. And I said no, for all the reasons I just mentioned. So logically, I won the argument, and we did not get a dog. Except that conversation kept happening. Every second day, third day, she wasn't watching before, and now she is. <laughs> Regularly, we would have this conversation. And I felt really guilty that I was a terrible husband. I'm two months into the job, and I'm sucking at it. Like, I'm terrible. <laughs> this thing that's really important. So I'm out a couple of nights a week at church stuff. I'm late from work sometimes. My wife just wants some company, and I'm saying no to it. And so I, of course, won the conversation. And Bill, if we could chuck that picture up, um, that is the result of me winning our conversation, is uh, if we got a dog, it had to be cool. So we got a German Shepherd, and that's the day we picked up Kira at eight weeks old. That's how big she is. 
freaking bear. <laughs> uh, if we go to the next slide, um, at full grown, she was about this big. She was huge. And we're going to leave that picture up for a little while so the eyes of guilt can stare at you for a while. <laughs> so there are negative ways that guilt can affect you, where you have like knee-jerk reactions and you buy a dog. These are responses that aren't particularly healthy, okay? And they just work because they're about me, so I can tell them. If you have found Luke chapter 19, it's a, got a bit of a passage about a dude named Zacchaeus. And so um, we're going to preach together. I'm going to teach you how we start a sermon prep. What I want you to do when we read this passage is think about, firstly, what does it say about um, Zacchaeus? And therefore, kind of, what does it say a little bit about me? And in the second kind of thought, think about what does it say about Jesus? And that is usually where I will start a sermon. Um, and then I research it, and then, you know, we don't have to do too much of that stuff. But let's start with that, yeah? Um, I'll read it so you don't have to stress Uh, So verse 1, it says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached uh, the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. All right, Zacchaeus, what have we got? What do you notice in that passage about Zacchaeus? Anything, literally anything. He's short, lovely, good place to start. Um, quite relevant too, but... It's a good place to start. He's rich. I saw her tax collector. Would have been hated because he was a tax collector. Probably not because he was short, although some people probably gave him grief about it. Guilty? Yes. A few things. Cool. So, people would have hated him. So, as a tax collector, so he's a Jewish dude living in Jericho, which is a Levitical city. So very kind of important religious um, rule-following, if you will, kind of city. And the tax collectors were considered traitors to their own people because they were working for Rome. And if you were collecting taxes, basically any profit you made above the required tax level you kept, that was your income. And so he would go to someone, he'd go, hey, Henry, you actually owe me two bucks on the dollar, which is a stupid tax rate, but whatever, every time I come and see you. And so you go, oh, okay. And then he walks away knowing that it's only a dollar for the dollar. I don't know why I picked this tax rate. Don't do this for economy. Um, so he's keeping half of that. Every time he goes through, he's keeping half of it. And if you were here, was it morning, Johnny? You talked about um, bank loans and things. You're not meant to charge interest. It's a similar thing with taxes. There's a threshold you're not meant to hit. Um, but these tax collectors were renowned for just upping it. So if he's chief tax collector, he's probably done pretty well at his job and he's been put in charge of the whole region. And he's wealthy, so he's making a decent amount of cash from it and keeping it. Now, the city of Jericho, they're probably going around saying, give to the poor, give to the poor, give to the poor, because that's what you're meant to do with the money. They're also probably saying, tithe, 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 because that's what you're meant to do with the money. And maybe he is, maybe he isn't. We don't actually know. We can make a pretty good assumption, but we don't technically know. He was short, so he probably copped a little bit of something from over time from friends. I was skinny, I still am skinny. I've copped grief from friends since I was about five about being a stick. Um, So I can imagine that for a bloke in a culture where 
the men are really senior and in charge. He probably copped a little bit along the way. But he doesn't seem to care because he runs ahead, he climbs a tree. Now, I looked up a sycamore fig tree. I couldn't find a good stock image that didn't have copyright, copyright, copyright. But they're huge. So it would been really obvious that he was climbing a tree. Like, he would not have been subtle about it. It's not like he was just up a branch. These things were high, they were widespreading, and they have, like, the ones I saw, they have about a, a metre gap, maybe two metre gap, between the ground and first branches. So I don't even know how he got into the first limb. Like, did someone help him? Did he jump? Did he carry on? Like, people would have known that Zacchaeus was climbing a tree. That's probably a good place to start for Zacchaeus, I reckon. Yeah, what do we see about Jesus here? He was hungry, probably. Grown 30-year-old man. I bet he was hungry. I have known that issue. He noticed him. He noticed him. Yes. He doesn't always follow the script of what we would expect. Yep, does. So is that social norms, Lana? Very much so. So he calls him by name. He doesn't just say, hey, you in the tree. He knows the key is his name. And if you think about what his lifestyle in that culture would have been, no one's probably said his name kindly in years. Um, between friends that he probably didn't have, um, people that avoided him. It's probably been a long time since anyone's kindly said, hey, Zacchaeus, come down. I want to spend time with you. Probably would have been a rare thing. Jesus was in Jericho. I read through where his journey was at that point. He's heading to Jerusalem, and Jericho is not on the way. Like, it's not particularly out of the way, but it's not directly on the way from where he was coming from. And so if you look through all the other Gospels, there's no other accounts of anything else happening in Jericho. So he heals a couple of blind guys outside of it, just before this, and in the other Gospels it's referenced twice. But nothing else happens in Jericho. So you could take the assumption, make the punt that he went there for this guy. And that was it. There was no other reason that he went there, which is pretty special, pretty important. And then what we have is this result. So they had this conversation over lunch, and it's kind of a weird gap in the way it's written. Because it says he comes down from the tree and then he makes a statement, but the way it's written, it implies that lunch kind of happens in between. So he comes down from the tree, they go and have a meal and they chat for a while, and then it's like he comes back out to the crowd or to Jesus and says, hey, this is what I'm going to do. And he says, I'm going to give back half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody, I'll pay back four times the amount. Now, 20% on top of what you stole was the requirement, which he knows. And so instead of saying I'm going to pay back 20% on top, he's going to pay back four times which is a fairly different um, proportion. And so I feel like this man who for all of his life has heard what he should do, and in the back of his head has probably had guilty, 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 I'm not doing that, guilty, guilty, it's too late now, guilty, guilty, I'm too far gone, guilty, guilty. He's like, well, this is what I'm going to do. Now spend time with Jesus, this is actually what I'm going to do. You know, this is the requirement, this is the bare minimum, like, screw that, we're going big. You know, this is the response based off my conversation with Jesus and the realisation that I've had. I've had all this time and all these years of mistakes and Jesus has said that that's okay. Well, it's only money. Like, I'll, I'll throw it away. I'll give it to people who need it or do it more than what I'm needed to do. So there's two big things that I kind of noticed coming out of this back half, right? One is that if you flip back a page or look back half a chapter, at the end of um, Luke 18, there's a story of a rich young ruler who Jesus says, give away all your money and you can follow me. And the guy walks away upset. And Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to go through a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, but what is impossible for man is possible for God. And so everyone would have gone, well, that's impossible. It's over. And then literally 
well, for us, it's half a chapter, but in a recent span of time, he then has this wealthy dude who he says, welcome in, because at the very end, he says, salvation has come today into this man's house as a son of Abraham. So he, uh, he confirms his identity as a true Jew, which he's probably been told all his life he's not. And then he has immediately talked about this story or this event with a young ruler where he said, this is impossible. He's shown that it is through Jesus. So that's the first thing. The second thing is I see this as, um, I don't know if you've ever heard the parable of the unmerciful servant, where there's a ruler and there's two servants. And one servant owes heaps of money to the king. And he goes, I can't pay it back. Just can you forgive me? Like, otherwise it's all over. Can you forgive me? And the king eventually says, yep, sure. Forgives him. He walks out of the room. And then one of his other servants, one of his colleagues, says, hey, I owe you a little bit of money. Can you forgive me? He goes, no, go to jail. And the the story kind of ends-ish there. This is the appropriate response. Because if you do the numbers, which I did, because that's how my brain works, that second servant, it says in the Bible that he, he owed the first servant 100 denarii, which a denarii is about a day's wage, which if you convert 100 denarii into today's money through the Australian Bureau of Statistics and average income in Australia, it's about $24,000-ish, which is pretty penny. And the guy is reasonably fairly upset. You owe me 24 grand, that's a big deal, pay it back. The problem is, half a story earlier, he was forgiven 10,000 talents. So for denarii is one day's wage, a talent is 20 years wages, which if you extrapolate that out is roughly $12 billion. And suddenly 24,000 isn't such a big deal when you've been forgiven that. But he doesn't. What I see here with Zacchaeus is the correct response to that understanding. He realises that his 10,000 talents have been paid for. He spent all his life doing his job and he's never quite felt right because he rushes to see Jesus. He's heard about him and he knows something in him is missing. And in one conversation, a thing he spent his whole life trying to fix looks like it's resolved. And that is the response to a 10,000 bags of gold issue. So we talk a lot, and Ezra was really helpful tonight, we talk a lot about how there's the miracle of life when people have kids, and it's a big deal because new life happens, and it is a big deal. If you haven't been in a labour room yet, it's an interesting experience, but it is a miracle. But the real miracle is when something that's dead comes to life, because it didn't have life and now it does or it had ended its life, and now it has new life. And so Ephesians talks about we were dead in our sins, now we're alive in Christ, and so you could talk about that Zacchaeus is dead in guilt, but in shame, sure, but in theft and in greed and probably in envy of other people and all that sort of stuff. And then he's showing a life through Jesus after this one conversation. And that's the real miracle, right? That is a redemption thing that only Jesus can do. So what do we do with that? Because it's great to read it in a story and it's cool to pull out a couple of points and to chat about what do we see in it. But that's only half the job. So what do we do with this? So I've got a thought for you for tonight and a thought for you for during the week. So you need to do it this week because if you don't do it this week, you'll never do it. If you're like me, it just goes to the back of the brain and it's gone. So I got a text this afternoon at 2.39, which is a reply to a text I sent on Thursday. And I was like, how in the world did you do that? That was three days ago. I forgot I even sent that. How good. So if you don't do it this week, it's game over. I want you to pick two times of the week. Now, 
in, in this story, it only happens once, but we're not biblical creatures and characters, and so we're going to do it twice just to make sure we're good. But pick two times in the week to spend time with Jesus, above and beyond what you would normally do. So if maybe once a week you read the Bible, this week I want you to try and do three times. It doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to be all in one day. But just add two. It may not be reading the Bible. It might be praying. It might be listening to some music. That's my normal go-to. It might be going down to the beach, spending some time alone in nature. It might be fasting, whatever it is. But pick twice. Now, if you normally do something like that every day, you've got some double headers this week. You don't get a, to avoid this because you already do it daily. I want you to intentionally pick two additional times to sit with Jesus. Zacchaeus had changed his life. And so what I challenge myself to do as I'm preparing this is, do I believe that's possible for me as well? Or do I just believe that it's over time and that it takes 20 years for God to change me because I haven't seen a miraculous transformation like that? Or do I actually believe that one conversation with Jesus can do that? So give yourself two opportunities for that to happen. The second thing we're going to do is we're going to share in communion tonight. And you can do what you need to do. And often we kind of, we take reverence as somber and we're kind of quiet and serious and that's okay. But I want you to remember when we do communion tonight that we know the end of the Easter story. So when communion happened the first time, it was kind of a Good Friday story. Jesus goes into the cross, goes onto the cross shortly after and then into a tomb. But we know that that stone rolls away, he comes out and then things are new life again. So I want you to think about that as the context in which you're dealing with these things. Everyone's got something they're going to deal with. You don't have to tell me what it is, but I know you feel guilty about something because you're human. It's normal. But we want to be able to utilize that and not go into a shame spiral and actually invite the Holy Spirit in to transform those areas that are affecting us. And so that's what we're going to do in communion tonight. I've got a little song that we'll have playing so the team can be part of this moment as well. But I just want you to reflect on whatever you need to reflect on but not in a doom and gloom, woe is me, I'm the worst person in the world scenario. I want you to remember that the tomb opens again, Jesus rises, and he takes us with him. And I know it doesn't change anything in some of the guilt, but it changes everything in the transformation on the back end. Right. So that's what we're going to do. So we've got tables spread around, and we'll let this song run for a little bit, and I'll pray at the end. We've preached together. Let's pray together. And then we'll, um, we'll celebrate together as well. Uh, Father God, thank you that um, we have a place and a time and an opportunity um, to come together as your people. Um, Father, I pray that um, words of mine that were helpful would stick and words that weren't would be wiped from memory. And Holy Spirit, that you would be sealing in what you need to do. Um, I have done more than I probably should have, and it's all over to you. Um, it's your time to do your work. And so, Lord, as we go into the rest of our evening and into the starts of our weeks, Lord... Uh, I just pray that you would give us opportunity to be dwelling on some of this stuff, um, that you would be stirring us in it, that you would be teaching us and guiding us more and more uh, as we seek to look more like Jesus. This has been a presentation from Narara Valley Baptist Church, a church that's desperate for God and passionate for people. To continue the conversation, we invite you to join us Sundays at 9.30am and 5pm or on our website at www.nvbc.info.